You know, as we heard this morning, the beginning of the Gospel of John, uh, we hear something made very clear about Jesus. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He already was with God in the beginning. And uh, we read that nothing was made apart from him. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ had a part in creation, as did the Holy Spirit. The whole Trinity was at work and was around long before the beginning that we hear of in the book of Genesis. This is one of those things that just always just taken my breath away is that there is a God who has no beginning, who always was. And to me, one of the most uh, uh, clear evidences of the presence of God and the existence of God is existence itself, the fact that we are even here. If there wasn't always something, we could never be. Does that, can you get your head around that? If, 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 if there never was a God to create all this stuff, we wouldn't be here right now. To me, that is one of the just unfathomable things. There are some things that we can never understand. And what we've been uh, talking about in the last several weeks is the fact is you don't have to understand everything in order to live the life that God has created us for and that, uh, that we know we're supposed to be living. It's just, uh, you see, Jesus did not have his start at Bethlehem. We kind of get that impression sometimes. He was around long before. And John makes it clear that this is so. Jesus is not the Son of God because he was born of a virgin. He was born of a virgin because he is the Son of God. Now you can write that truth on the tablets of your hearts. I'm going to say that again. Jesus is not the Son of God because he was born of a virgin. He was born of a virgin because he is the Son of God. He is the Word made flesh. He is God become one of us. As it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Next week, we're going to be talking a whole lot more about the Word and uh, who the Word is. What, why does John use this word, Word, which the Greek word is logos? which means something very significant to both Jew and to Greek, and to the Greek. But uh, in this passage today, the two main things I want to lift up this morning, well, one of the one, there are two things we're going to be lifting up today and then next Sunday uh, are these. First of all, he came to save us. And secondly, he came so we could really understand God. Just thinking about that reminded me of the story. A lot of you've already heard it, I'm sure, about the guy that wasn't much into church going. He just couldn't understand 
why God would have to come down to earth, why he couldn't just have like flashed something across the sky and said, I'm God, listen to me. I've written a book. You really need to read it. It's a bestseller. You know, he could have done stuff like that, but he didn't. Why did he have to? And he just thought that was just fables and myths. Why would he have to do something like that? His family went off to a uh, Christmas Eve service, and he was left there at home, sitting by the fire, as a snowstorm blew in. And all of a sudden, he heard a thump on the glass door by, on, the, on the side of his den. And then he heard another thump. And so he got up and he went over. A flock of snowbirds were disoriented because of the snowstorm and they saw the light and they were trying to fly and they were hitting the they were they were hitting the glass because they couldn't see. And they were gonna they kept on flying into the window and he didn't and so he went outside and he thought, what can I do? These poops burp these birds are gonna die. And so he went and he got an idea. He opened up the barn. He thought they'll be safe in here. And he tried to shoo them into the barn, but they just kept flying all around and kept bumping into the, the glass window. And uh, he would get them going that direction. They'd veer off from the door to the barn and head off another direction. And he just was breathless from trying to get these birds, trying to save these birds. He said, oh, man, if I could just become a bird and talk to them. And all of a sudden, it dawned on him why God came as a man. All of a sudden, it made sense. He came, as uh, I mentioned, first, so he could save us, and secondly, so we could really understand God. And it's this reason that we affirm this Sunday, uh, in, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, uh, his coming into the world. And so I want to review it as we prepare for the Lord's table this morning. Now, next Sunday, we'll look at the second reason. Although John doesn't mention it, the manner in which Jesus, the word become flesh, uh, came into the world the way he did is so important. It's very important to our salvation. This morning, as we affirmed our faith through the Nicene Creed, we use these historic words for us and for our salvation. He came or he became incarnate in the or by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. In the Apostles Creed, we affirm that he was born of the Virgin Mary. Now, you see, the truth of the virgin birth of Christ is a truth that's opposed on every side. The world mocks the idea of a virgin birth, viewing it as a primitive medieval superstition. The devil hates the virgin birth because it teaches both the humanity and the deity of his nemesis, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And sadly, many nominal Christians, due to ignorance, doubt or think it's incidental. 
And let me just remind you this morning, it's not incidental. It's foundational. You have no hope of salvation apart from the virgin birth. If you remove the virgin birth of Jesus, you destroy the foundation of Christianity and it collapses like a house of cards. In the first chapter of Luke, when God sent the archangel Gabriel to Mary, she's identified as a young virgin. When Gabriel tells her that she'll conceive and bear a son, her first question is, how can this be? When Mary adds that she knows not a man, the words confirm her virginity. Mary asks a good question, and Gabriel explains how it was going to happen. The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, and the power of the Most High shall overshadow thee. Therefore, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Some say the idea of the virgin birth is a biological impossibility. And Mary was apparently thinking this same thing. If you're resisting the thought of Mary becoming pregnant by divine intervention from her creator God, Gabriel, who should know, said in these words that were reviewed last week, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. The virgin birth does not depend upon our understanding for its validation. Vance Havner said, I don't understand electricity when I'm not going to sit around in the dark until I do. There are a lot of things we don't understand, but still we experience them and we avail ourselves to them. Robert G. Lee, one of the great Christian orators of the 20th century, said, I don't believe God is an impotent and puzzled bellhop running up and down the corridors of the house he designed by his omniscience and created by his omnipotence, having lost the key to become the mystery rooms of, of his own house. It is impossible for him to be baffled or bothered or chained by the physical elements. God is not bound by the very laws he himself created in the universe. He himself has made. He is master and Lord of the universe. God can do anything he well pleases. He's God. Now, if you believe in creation you have no difficulty with the virgin birth. If you could get past Genesis 1-1, you're home free concerning miracles. You can't explain creation any more than you can explain God. When you can explain God, then perhaps you can explain the virgin birth. If you have difficulty believing the virgin birth, your real difficulty, let's face it, is that your God is too small. The virgin birth is a sacred mystery, yes. But the virgin birth and the incarnation, Jesus coming as God in the flesh, were necessary for our salvation, as we affirmed in the Nicene Creed today. Angels proclaiming his birth uh, declared to the shepherds declared, For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior. 
at the very beginning of the announcement of his birth, salvation is proclaimed. A Savior, which is Christ the Lord. That's what the angels called him, Christ the Lord. Mankind desperately needs a Savior. John 3.16 says that. Since the Bible clearly teaches that all have sinned, the wages of sin is death, the soul that sinneth shall surely die, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. We must die or someone must die in our place. Now follow closely with what I'm about to share with you. God gave Adam and Eve dominion in the Garden of Eden. They sinned and forfeited their dominion, turning it over to Satan. Rather than being servants of God, they became slaves of Satan. They infected the entire human race with sin. Our dominion was lost by a man. Therefore, it must be redeemed by a man, another man, not Adam. Adam has now been soiled with sin and can never be a perfect sacrifice. This chapter or this, this verse is one that when it, it, just, it just pulls it all together for me, and I hope it does for you. Because there's a scriptural and a spiritual principle here in 1 Corinthians 15 in verses 21 and 22. For since by a man, and in some translations it says by one man, Adam, came death. By a man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, came also resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Sin came into the world through one man, a sinless man who sinned and fell. And that sin, that infection spread through all humanity. Sin can only be taken out of the world by one perfect man. And that one perfect man is Jesus. All of us reside in the camp of one of these two men, either Adam or Jesus. Jesus Christ came born of a virgin to undo what Adam did. God's answer was a perfect man, the God man, the Lord Jesus Christ, both truly human and fully sinless. Only he could undo what the first Adam did when Jesus died for our sins on the cross. In Hebrews 9, 22, it says, Almost all things are by the law purged with blood. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Sin must be atoned by shed blood, either ours or a substitute's. But that blood must be sinless blood. None of the atoms in all of creation uh, would be able to uh, provide blood for the atonement of sin. None of us can qualify. We know we're sinners by birth, choice, practice, and nature. 
If Jesus had been born like we are, he would have been a lost son of Adam, a sinner, a child of, 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 of sin. Had he been a sinner, he couldn't have been innocent. Had he not been innocent, he could have been nobody's substitute, not mine, not yours, no one's. The only sin he could die for would be his own. Jesus Christ had to be a sinless, spotless, perfect lamb, or his sacrifice would never do. But God is spirit, and spirit has no blood. You ever thought about that? Thus, God the Father, since he has no blood, he has no blood to shed. The great eternal I am cannot bleed and cannot die. Thus, the word had to leave heaven and enter earth as the incarnate word, Jesus, in the human body. Now, whose blood circulated in that little baby? The blood of God. Because, you see, the bloodline is determined by the Father. From the moment of conception, no blood passes from the mother to the child. Have you ever thought about that? That's why a, a child can have a totally different blood type than its mother. If the blood were shared, it would have to be the same type. If you get the wrong blood type from a transfusion, it can kill you. And so it's clear there is a barrier between the child and the mother. Now, the, the things such as uh, nourishment and, see, let's face it, sometimes drugs and disease can pass through that placental barrier. But there's not an exchange of blood. Now, the uh, blood, child's blood is unique and separate from the mother's, brought about at the moment of conception because of the father. That explains why a child, like I said, may have a different type of blood type. The blood which was shed on the cross of Calvary, you see, wasn't just another man's blood. He couldn't have just taken any man and made him good because the blood would have already been tainted. But the blood that was shed on Calvary was the very blood of God. No wonder the earth recoiled as he hung on the cross and his blood touched the earth, the blood of the one who had created it. No wonder there were earthquakes and the whole earth shuddered at that moment. In Acts 20, 20 says, Take heed to feed, to feed the church of God, which he, God, hath purchased with his own blood. And then in John 1, 14, as we read today, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Because his Father is truly God and his mother is truly human, Jesus is God in human flesh, God and man. And as they say in different ways in the Apostle or in the uh, Nicene Creed, 
No, the way it was originally written, it was very God of very God and very man of very man. If you try to take away from the deity of Jesus, that's heresy. If you try to take away from the humanity of Jesus, that's heresy. He's God. He's man. Not all God and no man. He's the only begotten son of God. The only one qualified to die upon that cross for our salvation. If you take away the virgin birth, you have no hope of heaven. If Jesus had not been born of a virgin, he would have been a son of Adam, not a son of God. He was born of a virgin, therefore the son of God, sinless. Because he was sinless, he could die a substitutionary death to atone for sin. He atoned for our sin that we might be born again and go to heaven. He became the son of man that we might become children of God. As it says in, uh, let's see, where is it? it says, but as many as received him to them, this is in John three twelve through 13, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right or the power to become children of God to those who believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man, but of God. So you see, when Jesus has had his disciples together in that upper room on that last night, and he took the bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body given for you. He was saying, I'm giving myself as a sacrifice for you. When he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. He was talking about his blood being shed for you. It's a mystery, but his blood was sufficient, a full and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. I can remember that moment in time when it dawned on me the reason why I didn't know the presence of God in my life was because my sin separated me from God and there was nothing I could do to take back any of the pain I'd ever inflicted on another person. Any of the sins that I'd ever committed that were an affront to God, I could take none of them back. They were a part of history. They were part of me. And I realized at that moment I couldn't do anything about it. And I didn't know what to do about it except to try not to die because I knew I was going to go to hell if I did. And you can't really enjoy living if you're living trying not to die. That's not much fun. Just think about it. Whenever you start driving home, you're taking your life in your hands. If you're just worrying all the time, I got to stay alive or I'm going to hell. You know, it's just a tough place to be. Maybe you haven't been there. But uh, I tell you, it was one of the bleakest moments in my life. I didn't know what to do about it. And then I thought, now, wait a minute. The church, the Bible, they say that somehow the cross has something to do with the very thing that I'm having a problem with here. 
And I don't know how it works. But even though I didn't know how it works, I knew that somehow Jesus was the key. And I cried out and said, Jesus, help me. And he was there. And he assured me that night that, yes, what he did on the cross, he did for me. But then he also said, yes, what he did on the cross was for you. And it was for you. And you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you. And a lot of people around the world that aren't here today. There was a place for you on his cross that day. God had prearranged it, knowing you were going to mess up before the very foundation of the world. He had made a way to get us out of this mess. And that is what we celebrate this morning as we gather at the Lord's table and we partake of his body and his blood. The only sacrifice that could have made us clean was made. But we have to do one thing. We have to receive it. And that's what we remember today is that all of us who have received what he did on that cross have been given the power to become children of God. This is why the angel could say that he brings good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people. Jesus reiterated that for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. That man couldn't become a snowbird, but God became a man. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.